Welcome to Helping Challenging Children. This podcast is for adults who want to understand why children behave the way they do and how to support them to increase their ability to self-regulate and to become more independent. My name is Dr. Pat McGuire. I'm a developmental and behavioral pediatrician who and I have been working with these children for over 30 years, and I can tell you that with the right support, they all do great. So enjoy these podcasts, and hopefully you learn a little bit each time. Greetings. Today we're going to discuss how communities divide up their neighborhoods and how that affects children. As I listen to people discuss the issues of the poor in our country, I frequently hear that, quote, Those people, meaning people of color, like where they live. Or they don't have the same drive to succeed. And also, if they really wanted to improve their lives, they would live someplace else. I have also heard white neighbors complain about the number of black gangbangers who moved from Chicago to our community. That confuses me because a lot of these people are also the ones who said, if they wanted to live a better life, they should move away from their poor neighborhoods. But I guess they did not mean to then move to our neighborhoods. Of course, our community also has certain neighborhoods where we expect these families to live. And it was not in our nice white neighborhoods. There was always complaints and protests when low-income housing, usually apartments and other multiple family dwellings, were slated to be built near these better neighborhoods. Situations like this are part of the problem related to helping people of color and other minorities find safe housing, safe neighborhoods, and good schools for their children to attend. These are three factors which can keep children of color from reaching higher levels of success as adults. The result is that currently around 9 million children attend underfunded and racially isolated schools in the US. It has really not been that long when looking at the history of this country that there was even a consideration that all children, not just white children, should have a free and appropriate education, which includes access to good teachers and necessary resources to aid in learning. In fact, the demand for the end of segregation was declared in 1954, the year I was born, under Brown versus the Board of Education of Kansas. Decades after Brown versus the Board of Education, There are still divisions between children of color and white children, well-to-do children and poor children, and U.S.-born children and new immigrants. This leads to significant differences in funding and personnel, which leads to different long-term outcomes. Segregation may have been addressed by requiring schools to actively desegregate, but communities found ways around it by drawing school boundaries differently. This way, students were still going to the neighborhood schools rather than being bused farther away to be in all black schools. There are also different districts formed within large metropolitan areas whose boundaries would carve out preferred areas of the community for themselves 
leaving the lower income neighborhoods to the larger metropolitan area. In addition, there was intense pressure from white homeowners to not have their children in the same schools as lower income children of color. But school boundaries were not the only barriers to families of color. The differences in where families of color ended up living are a combination of historic redlining of neighborhoods, which would prohibit allowing non-whites from buying homes in certain neighborhoods through restrictive loan practices and restrictive covenants against selling to African-Americans. It is not just boundaries which are affecting students. States are supposed to provide gap funding for differences between their high poverty and low poverty schools, but is under local control. So most of it will be divided to both the low poverty and the high poverty white schools, but less to the non-white schools, according to edbuild.org. The funds that the federal government supply are also significantly less than that what the non-white schools need and compared to what white schools can generate through their property taxes and other revenue. The school boundaries also lend themselves to having local organizations supporting the schools that are already excelling due to economic differences from adjacent schools. The origins of racially and ethnically segregated neighborhoods has its governmental origins starting in 1934 with the Federal Housing Administration or FHA, which refused to issue loans and mortgages in or near African-American neighborhoods and forbid the selling of their subsidized housing to African-Americans by contractors. These and other rules and regulations also put severe limitations on loans to people in those communities who wanted to start businesses. Insurance companies were also less likely to cover these businesses due to their location in redlined neighborhoods, which meant they were higher risk for crime. American Progress in 2016 reported on housing discrimination for African-Americans. They found evidence of discrimination against Hispanics also. In a 1989 HUD study, they found that Hispanic homeowners had a dis discrimination rate of 56% and, his and Hispanic renters had a discrimination rate of 50%. These problems continue to persist today. In fact, a recent study from Stanford University found that black and Latino families need to earn more than white families to be able to live in certain neighborhoods. When attempting to purchase a home, Black and Latino borrowers continue to be victims of discriminatory lending practices, often paying higher interest rates than whites with similar incomes. There are also numerous news reports of Black families having their houses assessed at significantly lower values when putting their homes on the market. And this is found as if they have signs that a black family lives there, which could include having a picture of the family. If the house were then reassessed with those items missing or substituting pictures of white families, their homes could be worth tens of thousands of dollars more. All this leads to a more challenging time for people of color to live in communities with better schools.
That in turn leads to less opportunities for their children due to lower expectations. Lower expectations and less opportunities lead to anger and frustration, along with the risk of negative behaviors, drug and alcohol use, and mental health problems. Minority students will also frequently find it more difficult to get student loans and will frequently have to pay higher interest rates than their white peers. When people talk about institutional racism, this is part of what they're talking about. This is the part that affects a child's right to feel safe in her home and neighborhood. It affects his belief that he will obtain an education which will provide him with the tools to support himself after high school, which may include having the ability to go to a trade school or university. It affects their belief that they will not be profiled and subject to discrimination by the law and by employers. We must look at the walls we, as the white part of society, have put around our schools and our neighborhoods. We need to bring them down or redraw them to be inclusive and fair to all, not simply the select few. We can do it, but we need to understand that we need to do it if we are to be truly a democracy.